Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10, and our text will be verses 1 through 4 this morning. Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4. And as we come back to the book of Hebrews, we see a continuing argument being made where the Old Covenant is contrasted with the New Covenant. We see a contrast between life under Moses and that of what Christ has brought about in the New Covenant. And what becomes very clear is that under the New Covenant we have wonderful promises realized that the Old Covenant could not bring about. We often think of the blessings of Christ as being salvation, and we see that the salvation is brought about in the New Covenant, a true salvation. And what we should see is that salvation is oftentimes just a, a blanket term that we are saved from the wrath of God, but Scripture oftentimes describes what Christ brings in in, in a multiplicity of words that are distinct, and, and while they have overlap to one another, they're distinct in terms of how it describes our salvation. You think of justification, forgiveness of sins, adoption, sanctification, new heart, union with Christ. All of these are terms that are referring to the salvation that we have in Christ. And Hebrews describes all of these things and the vastness and the goodness of, of God and the salvation that we have in the new covenant. But as we look at the verses this morning, it's just simply called the good things. The good things that have been brought in is what the text says. And what we're told in this contrast is the old covenant could not produce the good things. And specifically, the law could not produce good things. And the text zeroes in on that ceremonial aspect of the law in regards to sacrifice. Sacrifices that they practiced in the Old Testament did not produce the good things. And so the whole purpose of those sacrifices and that ceremonial law was just as exactly as Paul says in Galatians, that the law was to be a schoolmaster. It was to be pointing us towards Christ. But it itself was not the good things. And there's something that becomes important for us to consider as we look at the historical reality of what the author was writing to these Hebrews, we, we might sometimes have this disassociation because we're not tempted to offer sacrifices. We're not tempted to practice the Day of Atonement. And so how we can bridge that gap of 2,000 years in which these Hebrews were, were struggling through these very things is this whole point. Things that we do, even when they're commanded by God and good, do not provide our salvation for us. And that's the whole point. God had commanded these things in the Old Covenant. They were to do these things in the Old Covenant. But it didn't bring them salvation. In so, only insofar as it pointed towards the true salvation they would receive in Christ. And so the point for us to consider this morning is this, is the things we do even when they're commanded to us. Even when they're good. They don't save us. And they certainly do not bring us assurance of salvation. Rather, we find out that when we are relying on the things that we do, we have no assurance. How well can we do the things that God commands us to have assurance? How do I know I've done it well enough? 
And that becomes the whole point of the text. And so there's five four arguments that show why the Old Covenant was faulty. The first was this, the law was a shadow. The second is the law required repeated practice and never accomplished it. The third thing is the law could not perfect. And the fourth is this, the law was a constant reminder of our sin. The law constantly reminded us that we're sinners. And number five, the law could not take away our sin. And so the whole point of the text is that we see the imperfection of the law and we see the perfection of the new covenant in Christ. So let us hear the word of God beginning in verse 1, Hebrews 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is the word of God. And may he bless the reading of it. The whole argument you see here is that that ceremonial law, that those sacrifices, uh, following them to the T could not accomplish the promise of the good things the good things of the new covenant. And the first reason for this was the law was a shadow. You notice what the text says, for since the law has but a shadow. And I want you to focus on the word has, which means that the law has some aspect of it. The law has some aspect of a shadow of what it's supposed to be giving. It's a, it, the law and the, the sacrifices were an example. It was to prefigure something. Uh, we might think of it in literary terms. It foreshadows something that was to come, but in itself, a sacrifice of an animal for the sake of atonement itself did not produce the good things of atonement. It was just a shadow. And now if you compare this to the word form in the text... It says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. In other words, it was a shadow, but it itself was not the form. So instead of the true form of the realities, the law was just simply pointing to it. And I want you to see the contrast between the word shadow and form. We know what a shadow is. We know what a shadow is. The shadow is not the thing itself, but it's, it's, it's based off of what the thing itself is. And sometimes it's fuzzy. Sometimes it's hard to make out exactly what the shadow is when it's representing. But the form is the real thing itself. And let me just show you how important this word form is. When Paul makes his argument on the deity of Christ... He says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It's the same, same word there. And what it's saying in Colossians, what Paul was saying in Colossians, is that Christ is truly God. He is the form of God. If you want to see God, you look at Christ. He was the real thing. 
And so when you look at this comparison between what the law is, is that it, it has a shadow, but it's not the reality, meaning this, it's not the real accomplishment of what it was pointing to. The law is not the reality of what it foreshadows. It's just simply a shadow. It does not contain the means necessary to accomplish the good things that are promised. The law simply pointed towards the good things, but the true realities of them, we're told, are here now. So the idea is pointed to these Hebrews is the idea of looking back to what we could do to earn our salvation through doing certain things is a hopeless endeavor. They were tempted to look back to the law and say, if we do these things in the law, we'll have salvation. And he's saying, no, that's just a shadow. It's not the real thing. Let me bridge the gap for us. Just as an example, they were going to, looking back to do things that God had commanded in the Old Covenant to find comfort in doing those things. Well, think about us doing that today. God commands us not to steal. That's a commandment of God. It's applicable. It's it's an eternal commandment of God flowing from the very nature of who God is. You're not to steal. Now, if you imagine this, you putting your trust in your ability not to steal. Let me ask you... And you, you just think about this for a second. Maybe you've never stolen a car. Or maybe you've never stolen something from a grocery store. Or maybe you have. But you think of all of the things that we could potentially steal that we say, that's really not stealing, but it, it technically is. And let's just say you've never stolen anything in your whole entire life. Have you ever coveted? Now, if your salvation and the assurance of the salvation rested on your ability to not steal, how hopeless would you be? And if you got to the heart of the matter, if it came down to us not being able to covet, which is a commandment, by the way, it's a sin to covet, What would happen to our assurance of salvation? It would rest entirely upon you. Now, is it good not to steal? Does God command us not to steal? Should we not steal and should we not covet? Yeah, God commands those things. Those are good things. They flow from the character of God. But the whole point is this, is I'm not saved by that. And my salvation is not kept by that. And I have no assurance at the end of the day of my faith by how well I coveted or not coveted. And that becomes the argument of the Hebrews. Is why would you look back at a shadow of something? Not only that, another weakness, not only the law was a shadow, but the law required constant practice. In fact, that's what the text says. It says that by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, year after year after year after year, they're killing animals in order to be right with God. Once a sacrifice was given, another was needed. 
Imagine as an Old Testament saint, the Day of Atonement comes. And this is all referring back to the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. The Day of Atonement comes. The priest does his sacrifice for his own sins. And then he offers the sins on behalf of the people. And you're celebrating this wonderful atonement that has been brought about through God's ceremonial law. And then as you're leaving the Day of Atonement, that you've been told that you've been forgiven and you stub your toe and you take the Lord's name in vain. Do you now wait another year? What do, you, what do you do for the remainder of the year? For that, may, they, that main primary day of sacrifice. You have to wait till the next year. Do you have to wait for a year to be forgiven? Do you have to wait till you have another chance to offer a sacrifice to be forgiven? How hopeless to rest on what a priest did, or how hopeless to rest on an animal to die in your place. But it was done repeatedly because it was a constant realization that the animal that was offered in sacrifice, though it be a spotless lamb or it be a pure animal, it really didn't die in my place. And it couldn't have died in my place. And if it did die in my place, then why do I have to keep on offering these sacrifices? That becomes the argument of verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? He's making a very wonderful argument to the Hebrews. If, if you're looking at going back and offering sacrifices and finding salvation in those things, if you really had salvation in those things, if they really brought you assurance of, of salvation, if they brought you peace really truly, then why did they have to keep doing it? Why didn't they cease in doing it? Why did they continue giving sacrifices if they were truly forgiven? And that's the point. That's interesting just from a, uh, an interesting point of view historically here. Verse 2, where it says that these sacrifices had ceased to be, would they not have ceased to be offered, is actually an indication of when this book was written. Because the author is writing from this perspective that the temple is still standing. Now in 70 A.D., Rome destroyed Jerusalem and tore down the temple. And when the temple was torn down, sacrifices ceased. But from the author's standpoint, when he's writing the book of Hebrews, it's as if the temple is still standing, sacrifices are still being given, and as a result of that, they're looking at back, going back to those things. And specifically, it says, verse 2, Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. Now notice the description here of those that offered sacrifices. It were those that were going to worship. It is those that gathered to worship God according to His prescribed means. In fact... The very act of going to the temple, the very act of going to worship, was something that they rested in as being a proof of their salvation or being part of their salvation or keeping their salvation. In Jeremiah chapter 7, 
Jeremiah is commanded by the Lord to go and preach in front of the temple and to say these words. Do not trust in these words. We have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Why did Jeremiah have to go and say that before the people that are coming to worship? Because they were viewing their worship, their obedience to worship, as part of their salvation, and they could do whatever else they wanted. And Jeremiah, in that sermon in Jeremiah 7, goes on to list several sins that they were guilty of. But because of that act of worship, that act of going to worship according to God's prescribed means, they saw that as being a thing that proved their salvation. They saw that as being a part of their salvation, even really a cause of their salvation. And that's what the Hebrews are, worried, are thinking about doing. Again, this is, this is important to see because it means that these people were doing what God had instructed them to do at one point, but they themselves were not the good things. It's not that in the Old Covenant that doing that was wrong. They were commanded to do that. It was God's will for them to do that. It was just that it was pointing forward to something else. Let me put it in this perspective for you. It's speaking of worshipers. Imagine today as you gather to worship. We're commanded to worship God. Are we not? It's a command to worship God. And when, when we see in Scripture a command to worship God, I'm not talking about this private thing that we do. Well, a life of worship, sometimes we call it. And that's good. But specifically, even the author of Hebrews says, we are commanded to gather to worship as a corporate body. In fact, because it's a command, when we don't do this, we're actually in rebellion against what God has commanded when we're able to do it. In the Old Covenant, they saw that as the means of their salvation. But what we recognize is this, as though that we're commanded to do it, though it's good to do it, though that we're supposed to do it, though it is part of the Christian life, we recognize also that our salvation does not rest on us gathering, does it? Now, what I'm not saying is that we, sh- we, don't, we, don't need, we, need to, we can cast that off as being unimportant. No, it's vitally important. In fact, I would say again, it we're in rebellion against God when we don't do that. The whole point is, is my salvation? And if you are in Christ, your salvation does not rest on how well you worship. And the Hebrews were looking at the yearly gathering and what took place as their means of assurance. So what if you missed? If your salvation rested on whether you were here every Sunday, would you have a hopelessness? Would you have any assurance when you missed? That's the whole point. And specifically, what they lacked was being cleansed. It says this, and otherwise they would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed? would no longer have any consciousness of sins. It means this in the Old Covenant, that this idea of having once been cleansed through the sacrifices, through the keeping of the law, did not happen. 
That idea of having once been cleansed never could be accomplished in simply keeping the law, in simply keeping the sacrifices, in, in keeping that ceremonial law. They could not be ever told that they had been cleansed. And this is the beauty of the gospel. This is what Christ has accomplished for us. We are cleansed by Him. We are not cleansed by what we do. Even if what we do is in obedience to God, that's not what cleanses us. Only Christ cleanses us. It's amazing how this is stated. It's stated in the perfect tense, which means it's speaking of a past event, but enjoying the the results of that past event in the present. That's what it means to be once cleansed for all. Jesus very carefully shows us this and visually demonstrated this in washing his disciples' feet. In John chapter 13, verse 10, he says, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. Jesus demonstrates what he brings about by actually washing them. Peter, in Acts chapter 15, later describes this at the Jerusalem council. When he says this, And he had made no distinction between us and them, speaking of Jews and Gentiles, having been cleansed, having their cleans- cleansed their hearts by faith. A one-time cleansing was something that was unknown in the Levitical law. It was not a thing that could be brought about, a one-time cleansing. And then because of that one-time cleansing that we have in Christ, it says we no longer have a consciousness of sins. But if you had to continually offer sacrifices, what do you constantly have? A consciousness of your guilt and your sins. Now, this doesn't mean that we no longer remember past sins as a Christian. It just means that we view them differently. It means this is that we view our sins as having been forgiven. That the debt that was, was, is against us has been canceled. That's how we view our sins. And this was the very promise of the Messiah. This was the promise of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from what? Their sins. That's the promise of Christ. That is the good things. And we need to see this in, in actually in connection to our Christian baptism, which was pictured in the ceremonial washings of the Old Testament. Why did they go to John the Baptist? Well, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 6, and they were baptized by him in the river, confessing their sins. And the baptism was that picture of that cleansing with repentance that comes. It's very interesting when you study the idea of ceremonial washings in the Old Testament. It was the priests that would go through ceremonial washings. Uh, regular people wouldn't. And in the temple, they actually had these massive basins that they would get into and bathe in. And they would be cleansed. And that was for the priest. Do you know what you're called in the New Testament? You're called a priesthood. And you're 
Christian baptism is that picture of that cleansing that you have received from Christ. And you who is a priest following in the line of those Levitical priests where they would have their cleansing when they would get in those big basins of water showing that they were cleansed. Here's the difference. How many times are you baptized? Once. They would have to do it continually. Get in that big tub of water and immerse themselves. They did practice immersion. That's demonstrably true. But they had to continually do it because it never fully removed their sins. The second, third thing is, is this. The law cannot perfect. It says it can never make perfect those who draw near. That is in verse 1. It can never make perfect those who draw near. And so if it can never perfect the person until the, the, that drew near for worship, meaning the idea that those that drew near, they were trying to look for something. And it says, by following this law, by following this one here and doing these things, it actually never perfected those who drew near. It left the person in anxiety until they presented another sacrifice. Which means that they were never whole. They were never complete. That's what that word perfect means. Now, Hebrews makes several sweeping arguments about this idea of perfection. Let me, let me just run some of them by you that we've looked at in the past. Hebrews 7.11, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, goes on to say, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? So the priesthood itself could not bring perfection. Chapter 7 and verse 19, it says, For the law made nothing perfect. That the keeping of the law made nothing perfect. Verse 9 of chapter 9, we see this. According to this arrangement, gifts, sacrifices that are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So all these things that they were doing... As the means of their salvation, we're told it never, ever perfected their conscience. It never made them whole. It never made them complete. So if I cannot ever reach a perfection of holiness to draw near to God, what hope do I have? So take a note of this, and we should note this, and we should already know this within our heart. There's nothing that we can do that will perfect our conscience before God. There's nothing that we can do even by following God's word that makes us whole before God. The grand resolution of this that builds this tension is in verse 14 of chapter 10. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So what's the beauty of the new covenant? You're perfected in Christ. In Christ, I'm made perfect. This is why the scriptures calls those that are in Christ saints, calls them righteous, calls them a holy priesthood. You see, our standing before God is counted 
as being perfected. Because our standing before God is in Christ. And Christ stands on our behalf. But why do we struggle with this? Why were the Hebrews struggling with this? And why do we, why do we struggle with it ourselves? People would be uncomfortable if you call them a saint. But yet that's what God's Word calls you. That's what God calls those who are united to Christ by faith. So we shouldn't have a problem with be called, being called a saint. But if I, was to, if I or someone else was to call you a saint right now, you would say what? I'm no saint. But yet that's what God has declared of you. Why do we struggle with that? It's because we still struggle with sin. It's because we, we know ourselves. We know our thoughts. We know how we act. We know what motivates us. Even when we want to do what Christ has commanded us to, because He has changed our hearts, He's changed our desires. But yet we still know that those are mixed. And so what we have to gather from this is this is when we are reminded of our sins, we need to think differently about them. And what I mean by thinking differently about our sins is seen in verse three, or can be brought out from verse three. It says, But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Now, because of the reference to every year, it means it's speaking of the Day of Atonement, which was once a year. Every time they offered sacrifices, they were reminded they were sinners. The sacrifices were reminders that they were sinful. A reminder is just simply put an event that causes us to remember something. I, I set alarms to help me remember things. My watch buzzes every hour to remind me to get up and walk. And apart from that, I, I, I would forget to get up and walk. We need reminders of things. And the, it, what this is simply telling us is that every year, that sacrifice, that Day of Atonement, was a reminder, you're sinful. Think of the impact. This is for those that were gathered to worship. This is those that are going to worship God. Think of the impact that every year we're reminded of our sinfulness. Now think about that. Oh, good to see you again, Brother Hezekiah, at the Day of Atonement. You're a sinner. Think of what that does to the person. And that's what the sacrifice did. You're a sinner. Once you offer this sacrifice, you have to offer it again because you are utterly sinful. How encouraging would that be? What would that do to a person? It would be to realize I am sinful and there is no resolution to this sin in what I'm doing in presenting a sacrifice. Death, blood, these things were required of, as a result of sin. And that death and that blood was a constant reminder these things do not actually bring you forgiveness. You know, it's an interesting word, the word reminder. 
in the New Testament, it's only used four times. Once here in Hebrews, once in Luke, and twice in 1 Corinthians. And what's amazing about the other three uses of the word remember or reminder is it always comes in regards to the Lord's Supper. Do this in what? Remembrance of me. You think about that for a second here. What Hebrews is telling us, that the sacrifices every year was a constant reminder, you're sinful. The Lord's Supper is a constant reminder of the one-time sacrifice of Christ, where we are reminded that we're no longer counted as sinners. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the new covenant. That is the beauty of what Christ has done for us. How wonderful of a Savior we have. Not only does He cleanse us once for all, but then He actually commands us. Think about this. Commands us. Christ commands us to set reminders for ourselves that we are forgiven. Christ says, do this in remembrance of me. Paul says, when you gather, do this. And so whenever we do and partake of the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that He took the punishment for us. We're reminded that we are forgiven of our sins and that we have been set free in Christ. That's the reminder that we have in Christ. That every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are to remember that we have been forgiven. And that's why the Lord's table is for believers. The Lord's Supper is for believers. The Lord's Supper is not to be taken by unbelievers. An unbeliever can never apply Christ's words, this is my body which is broken for you. The unbeliever can never remember back to what Christ has done. It's only applied to the believer. And this is the difference in the gathering of worshipers. Worship in the Old Testament reminded... You're a sinner. Worship in the New Testament reminds us you are forgiven and there is no condemnation for those in Christ. When we have our sins afflict our memory, or when we're guilty of sin, even now because we do continue to sin, we are to confess that, as 1 John says, we're to repent. And then we're also to remember and remind ourselves that we are no longer bound by them. And so when brought to memory, we must remind ourselves of the forgiveness that we have in Christ, that we have received in Christ the wonderful truths of the Scripture of the Gospel. Notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 5. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Every time sin and present past afflict us, we need to be reminded of the fact that we are in Christ and we are adopted and we can now cry out to God as Abba, Father. 
And he will never reject those that are in his son because he will never reject his son. Now, we would be wrong to say that these promises were not in the Old Testament or that there was no reality of this in the Old Testament because as we've already seen, there certainly was. Old Testament saints were saved as well. They were saved by shed blood. It just wasn't the shed blood of sacrifices of animals. It was the shed blood of Christ as they looked forward to it. But actually, the Old Testament sometimes gives us the most beautiful language of this forgiveness of sins that we have. In fact, in Psalm 103, in verse 10, we read this, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. That is a beautiful picture of how we have been forgiven. That we have been fully forgiven in Christ. Isaiah 43, in verse 12, states it this way, or excuse me, in verse 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Now, we know that God is omniscient. That means that God knows all things, that God is immutable, God is infinite, God is eternal, so there's nothing that He ever forgets. He knows all things. So when He says He remembers their sins no more, it doesn't mean that it it, it goes from God's memory as if that was a possibility. It just simply means this, is that God doesn't bring it up to charge you as guilty any longer. It's been put away. That's the truth of the new covenant. By the way, this is our example in how we treat one another in forgiveness, isn't it? That we're forgiven in Christ. We did not deserve that. How much more so should we forgive people who need forgiveness? And unlike unlike God, we're not perfect. God doesn't have to forgive us because He's perfect. He's the innocent party. So how much more so should we offer forgiveness? And the final argument that the author makes is this, is that the sacrifices cannot actually take away sin. Verse 4, it says, For it is impossible... For the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. As we've seen already, them being unclean unclean could be washed away in terms of the ceremonial law outwardly, but inwardly those things could never remove sin. Moral defilement, defilement cannot be removed by temporal things. And specifically, these reasons, an animal isn't human, so an animal can't actually represent you. I, I don't know how it was several thousand years ago, but I'm pretty sure animal nature was the same as it is now. They don't volunteer to be slaughtered. They have no consciousness of what they are doing. But you think of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and His descriptions, particularly in the Gospel of John, 
how he voluntarily goes to the cross. He set his eyes towards Jerusalem where he would be killed, where he would be murdered. Christ was fully aware. He takes on our nature and volunteers. The, the Old Testament saints that, that wrote Scripture teach us that they were, they were actually aware of this fact that the, the blood of bulls and goats could not actually take away sin. When David was confronted by the prophet Nathan, he goes on to say in verse 16 of Psalm 50, uh, 51, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. He goes on to say, what, what are the sacrifices of God? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And David teaches us that there was this awareness of those sacrifices that they could not actually bring a forgiveness of sin. Samuel says this to Saul when Saul was rejected. He says in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is better to obey than sacrifice and to listen to, than to the fat of rams. What was he saying? It's better for you to obey God's voice and then think you could get away with things by simply offering a sacrifice. An animal could not actually bring a true forgiveness of sins. It could not perfect the conscience. It, it would just continually have to be done over and over again. But what do we see of the new covenant? What do we see of the good things that are promised? We see this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Christ became like his brothers in every regard but sin and voluntarily went to the cross. The Old Covenant was the revealed will of God, and it was good, but it only foreshadowed the good things. So what are the good things? What are the good things that have come? John Owen says this, defines the good things this way. He says, hence, it is evident what are those good things to come? Namely, Christ himself. With all the grace and mercy and privileges which the church receiveth by his actual exhibition and coming in the flesh upon the discharge of his office, end quote. John Owen says, what is the good things? The good things are Christ. And the good things that are described here are absolutely good. We may experience good things in this life, but they're always mixed with impurities. Therefore, our experience of good is never pure. And what we see with the ceremonial law, which it was good as the revealed will of God, it was but a shadow. And the only thing that made it good was what, was, what that it pointed towards. And so we're told this is the good things have arrived and are truly good 
What are those good things that have arrived? Eternal redemption. Forgiveness of sins. Atonement. A living ministry. Access to the worship of God. Let us be reminded of the good things that we have in Christ. That we are set free in Him. That we're not looking to ourselves or anyone else for redemption. And if we were, we're still stuck in the things that are faulty. Let us see that the way to God to have fellowship with Him has been opened once for all. You think about Adam and Eve. They rebel against God and trust to worship the creation rather than the Creator. And God kicks them out of the garden. And He places a cherubim there with a flaming sword to bar entrance into the fellowship with God. Think of Cain's words. Cain's words, when he's cast from God's presence, says, this is too much for me to bear. And in order to have the presence of God in the Old Testament, you had to kill an animal, and it was only the priest that got to experience it. And so what we're told in this wonderful truth is that Christ has gone under that flaming sword on our behalf of the cherubim and entered into the way of presence of God. And because of that, He has opened a way to everlasting fellowship with our merciful God, to whom we may draw near. Christ is the good things that have come. And He has come. He is reigning now. So when we begin to become guilty of our conscience or have an afflicted conscience or we begin to doubt our salvation or we don't have a full assurance of salvation, we don't look to how well we do things. We look to Christ who has accomplished and completed it for us perfectly. Let us look to Christ. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel that sets us free, that teaches us that we have been forgiven in Christ. May we always look to our blessed Savior, the one in whom we have complete forgiveness. We thank you for the work of Christ and what he has accomplished. We pray your spirit would comfort our souls now and that this day would be set aside and dedicated to the truths that we have received in Christ, that in Christ the good things have come. We pray this in his name. Amen.